think I think we're on episode thirty six here. Are we? I think so. I'm sure now. That's clearly lost count, but we are back. Thirty seven. Not sure. You know the crazy thing about giving ourselves all that time off and then not seeing any news come out just really goes to show you how how reliant the news cycles are on the work schedule almost like news only comes out when people are working because most of the news that we see is not real i think we're gonna like see that get shaken up like more and more as people stop watching traditional news i mean you have people like i have plenty of family members who are dude (laughs) this is actually hilarious have you seen this quadrant that people bring up because people don't get regular tv subscriptions anymore right they get like virtual um kind of services like a youtube tv or something like that but there's like this quadrant of death that's just like all the big four news outlets you can pick whatever four you want kind of to put there and they watch all of them at the same time and they just switch which one has volume the rest have subtitles dude i came home for a holiday and my family was watching that i was like oh my god this is gonna be the most the most toxic thing i've ever seen <laughs> they're all repeating the same lines too it's so funny but yeah so people are going super hard in the news cycle but i think they're I think they're 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 the last of the, they're a dying breed. It's just not it's just not efficient, and it's not as you don't get those dopamine hits that people get from checking their phone and scrolling through a bunch of other entertainment on the way. So I think the future of news and work are gonna they're gonna become more distributed. I mean, like you and me. I mean, I haven't been in an office. I don't think anyone's ever let me in an office, but I I haven't been to like a traditional work day well, in that, years that's a good, for good reason too, candidly. <laughs> Um, I told myself as a teen I would never work in an office, and I'm I'm thriving, accomplishing my my no office goals here. Fair, I'm I'm happy and stoked for you. I I was pushing for work from home before COVID was the thing, and wow, so I, I felt very validated when all of a sudden everyone in my office was working from home, and I was like, yes, see yes. how great is this? The way this is this is the way. Yeah, um, I I just one thing before we dive into questions. You know, I think this is the, just the natural evolution of tech, media, and information at large. There's a day and age where the only way you could access news was through a newspaper. And show me someone who still reads a newspaper to get their news, and I'll show you the only hundred per, hundred year old person within a vicinity of you. And you know, as we saw, sort of the newspaper fade away. It never died, but it has greatly faded from its sort of heydays we're watching that sort of transition with traditional media onto more digital outlets if you will yeah yeah i feel that i think it'll die out stop the presses i love the campaign i think walker's buying that campaign for calling out the new york times who's calling out bitcoin making up statistics about how it's bad for the environment literally making up statistics about how it's bad for the environment and so they started a whole campaign called Stop the Presses that point out how much waste goes into, you know, the New York Times printing their their fucking newspapers every day <laughs> when the reality is it's got to be upwards of 70, 80 percent of their readers are online, maybe more. I mean, I know there's a lot of like older generation kind of boomers out there that are that are waiting for their news. I mean, their day's going to be going to be messed up if their newspaper doesn't arrive on time. So. 
it's still it's still very much a thing but i don't know this is kind of the new this is kind of the new model this is like a little bit how i think about conferences too it's we got to find these independent voices that are verifying things and make them into not journalists but the people that we want to get information from i think the idea of a journalist is so is very backwards and weird like the all reporting and coverage of actual events is fictionalized to some extent. You know what I mean? Cause that's not the event. That's not what happened. You're taking a bias just by choosing what you cover. Mm -hmm. So if we just acknowledge that the sources of our information are just like these fallible people and we just hold them individually accountable, I think we'll have a, a way better system for sharing information between each other. Not something I'd want to impose top down. Rather you just lift up the people like Nolan. Nolan's a really good example of this. We love Nolan. We know when Nolan's dead accurate. We know when Nolan's giving, you know, a really controversial opinion. There's no mistaking those things. You can go verify what he said. And this is a person who, if they're wrong about something, will acknowledge it. And they can change their stances, which is, you know, mind-blowing concept in this day and age that you might shift your position on something. Yeah. How was your how was your how was your Thanksgiving weekend? Too much traveling, not enough sleep, a lot of fun. I went to the greatest wedding I've ever been to. It was insane. Like, truly. I think the best way to describe it is the wedding took over this very nice hotel just outside of San Diego. And the center courtyard was just the whole ceremony. Ceremony doesn't doesn't even start until 8 p.m. So I think there were close to 600 people at this wedding. Like it's it was insane how many people were there. And all of us are in the center courtyard and every single person is doing their sort of walk up, but it's not like your traditional like classical music. It's like everyone had their own song choice. So some of them had my opinion great hip-hop songs present day and then some like banger persian music but dude everyone at this hotel is like either all the way up in the lobby like it's roped off but just watching taking pictures of this wedding going on or if you have a room that's facing the inside courtyard you're just on your balcony like watching this wedding go on but i was joking with my brother i was like this is the coolest wedding that none of them were ever invited to and everyone wishes they were attending so that was really fun and it was awesome. great to see family and and you know celebrate love all, all the cheesy cheesy cliche stuff papa is ready to sleep <laughs> that sounds fantastic sounds like a good time man a lot of my questions for the day are pretty noster focused i was wondering do you want to hit on anything bitcoin related before we dive in Actually, I have one that's kind of broad that continues kind of our pre-show conversation a little bit here if we want to start with that. Sure. Curious your opinion. Is land a good investment alongside Bitcoin? Now, that's a simple yes, no question, but you can you know dive deeper and tell us your thoughts about land ownership in the United States or elsewhere today. So, like... Personally, it, I don't think it's a yes, no question. I think it, it depends on what you want to use the land for. <clears throat> no, and, dude, Polte just liked our stream. Remember Polte? 
he's the he's the grandson of a real estate mogul he gives away free money all the time he has like millions of followers that he gives like he gives a couple thousand bucks away every day on his twitter remember we interviewed this guy he's just a super nice guy no i genuinely don't all right i'll send you his profile never mind but all right sorry. yeah DM because we are live okay so I don't think it's fair for that question to be yes or no, because I think it it is a little bit more nuanced. I believe that if if your intention is to almost do something similar with this plot of land as you would with Bitcoin, let's say, and you know, you're going to sit on it, do nothing, you're not gonna develop it, you're not gonna use it to grow food, you're not gonna use it to farm or raise you know, potential livestock and you're just going to sit on it kind of expecting, oh, you know, inflation will make this land more valuable and then I'll sell it and do that. No, that that's stupid. That That is the no. And then for all of the examples I just listed and then countless others that also include, you know, I'm going to build a home and raise a family here. I'm going to start a business here, whatever it is. Literally, if there is a genuine intent to develop and grow that land, especially given where we are but in society, civilization, and, and within our own countries, I, I'm of the notion that it's kind of a no-brainer because otherwise you're just going to end up living in the little pods that uh, Carl Schwab wants you to. Now there's a middle ground there. You can rent, you can rent places. So the question is like, what are we talking about? Land itself or a lot of people our age got into or trying to break into the real estate market. You know, they're kind of borrowing from Peter to pay Paul to make these weird housing plays work in a time, super high interest rate environment. It's kind of interesting. I mean, it, it also is just like our generation is sort of, we're at that age as they like to say you know it's like we've now typically have you know i guess you're technically a millennial i get like you 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 are still technically a millennial right no yes when does the cutoff i think i'm right on the edge anywhere from 95 to 98 Like, like that's how like I'm 94. Okay. So you're definitely a, a millennial then. Okay. Yeah. So we are the youngest millennials. Like there are millennials who are 40 years old with kids right now. <clears throat> we are nowhere near that. Yeah. So that's the little, that's like the weird part about watching some of these statistics. All oh, millennials are doing this. Millennials are doing that. It's like, yeah, we're, we're going to be doing those things probably for the next 10 years as the younger ones catch up. But by and large, with like us as exceptions, like we're coming up on it, but like most millennials have been working for 10 plus years. You put in 10 plus years, you have a, or theoretically you should have a level of savings in place to allow you to make certain financial moves that were otherwise not accessible to you 10 years prior, 15 years prior, however long it was. So that's, yeah, that's a huge point that touches on what I wanted to say as well, which is that I saw people going into this stuff. I mean, before I even got into Bitcoin, like years and years ago, and I was scared for them then. 
because they had no experience managing money or assets at all, which doesn't mean I wouldn't dissuade someone from trying, but in the back of my head, I'm like, Oh, you don't really have anything to back this up. What if this, you know, what if you lose your job? How are you going to pay, um, these mortgages? Like, how are you going to pay for the construction for renovating some of these properties that you've purchased? I would think a better way to get started is what you described, which is work really hard, build up the nest egg. Isn't there like an online community of people that focus on savings, but it's like the 80, 20 split and they're trying to retire really young. There's like a cult following. That's just more like a traditional. So really what that is, is the rule is the 20 is supposed to be, how old are you? So mm -hmm. like I'm 30 years old. Mm -hmm. my portfolio would actually be a 70 30 portfolio where 30 percent of it is supposed to be in bonds and as as you get older and older you're supposed to flee to safety have mm -hmm. less volatile things in your portfolio and maintain your portfolio balance with things like bonds right. so that's that's the 80 20 that's sort of the portfolio that if you've been following a lot of these things in traditional financial markets the conversation has genuinely been for the, for the last 12 months that, that if you were stringent, it's actually 60, 40, that's what it's called. The 60, 40 portfolio. Cause you really only start doing it once you're 40 that has underperformed for like the first mm -hmm. time ever since sort of that strategy was introduced. So people are starting to look for other things that would potentially help and a perfect segue for this well, we're seeing the reports come out that and i believe it was bloomberg put out a very lengthy piece where they they essentially they did this analysis and they said if you had a 60 40 portfolio you underperform but if you had a 60 39 one portfolio where the one percent was an allocation to bitcoin for the last 10 years which, okay, yeah, no shit. If you had Bitcoin 10 years ago and you just held it, you could have half a percent in your portfolio and you did excellent. But the argument essentially that Bloomberg presented was that 1% allocation out of bonds into Bitcoin made your portfolio outperform any other portfolio design with the exception of if you had 2% allocation to Bitcoin and so on and so forth. So we're starting to even see the traditional financial models start to say like, oh, you know what? this is no this is no longer speculative this is now if you actually want to succeed in in managing a portfolio and you don't have exposure to bitcoin you run too much of a risk of the political turmoil affecting your portfolio negatively yeah so the movement i was talking about that i think tracks some of this is the the fire movement i think this is a really reddit heavy it's financial independence retire early that's what it stands for and i think a lot of young people that i've talked to at least are interested in this they follow it on reddit but then they get sketched out at the investing part and they first of all the goal of this movement's a little bit it's not the highest bar really it's let's retire by 65 that's like pretty <laughs> you know what i mean that's like a pretty sad goal in my opinion but <clears throat> i think they miss a lot of what they end up holding cash for all this time and getting devalued there isn't that much talk about 
you know, a, a real store of value or, you know, inflation getting rugs by the, by the government and having to use assets to protect your wealth on the way up. And that's, that's part of the problem. But I think like that mindset is really useful, but unless you're applying it, like you said, to Bitcoin and some allocate, no allocation is crazy, but <laughs> some allocation, you're, you're really just not being as effective as you could be. And then going back to touch on the land real quick, I always think of it as it's more of a necessity, like not to own your own land or real estate or something like that, but you have to live somewhere. So it's okay. What are you willing to expend to do that? What kind of lifestyle you want? Are you in like super hodler mode, you know, live in a, in a studio somewhere super cheap and save all you can. That's great. But the long-term plan for a lot of Bitcoiners and I, at least the dream, we'll see how many actually execute this, is to build some kind of a, a citadel that in some ways is probably more self-sovereign than your average property. You know, maybe you maybe you pump your own water, maybe you're you're generating your own electricity, maybe you're mining there, maybe you've got your own supply of food there. I think these are the things that are really gonna shape the way culturally for Bitcoiners to become the real kind of sovereigns that are going to be, I mean, you're still absolutely beholden to the powers of whatever jurisdiction you land in, but they're going to have so much just wealth in general. Like these people that have, I mean, we've seen the HODL charts. It's, it's something crazy, you know, 80 plus percent of the Bitcoins being HODLed, you know, over half the people are already in profit. We're not even anywhere near the all-time highs yet. And it's just, okay, so what are they going to do with this money? If they can set up systems that allow them to arbitrage uh, jurisdictions, I don't know. I think it's it's a gateway to lead a like kind of new and interesting life. And culturally, it's going to become a new thing. Like Digital Nomad's been around for a couple of decades. But this kind of takes it to a whole new level because it's not you're not standing, you know, some hostel. It's no, we actually found a place like we see this with Bitcoiners moving to Costa Rica. You know, a lot of friends that we have moving to El Salvador, trying to set up somewhere where they can have more freedom from the state. Now, if you're a U.S. citizen, it's complicated because those taxes follow you. But there, there, there are things you can do to have a more, you know, the Puerto Rico loophole. A lot of people jump on that not really appetizing to me at all <laughs> but it's a move i guess what i'm saying is options are out there and it's not really a question of do i do this or do i not it's you're always going to have to live somewhere so you know what do you want to spend on that now what do you want to spend on that later and how do you how do you achieve your goals i guess really is the question yeah i i think the the last part that you point out is the most important unless the tax sort of system changes slightly like we're gonna the difficulty in operating remotely especially in foreign countries will be a hurdle that prevents the vast majority from sort of going sort of exploring that route what do you mean by that the difficulty of operating remotely i i mean it strictly from the tax perspective of like when like it's already a pain in the ass as it is if you have a a standard w-2 job and have your taxes taken out and you're filing for taxes at the beginning of each year like that's there's already a pain in the ass layer to that that most people can't stand most people don't want to deal with but if you want to then sort of live this remote digital nomad lifestyle there are 
a little it becomes a little bit more of a headache especially if your work and job is in the other country or you're getting paid in different currencies it, it becomes a not nightmarish scenario but it's like you have to have sort of the mental fortitude and like understanding that like this is going to be a pain in my butt yeah it's definitely not for everybody and it's harder for this is why i have a hard time like winning over <laughs> friends or members of my family that are older than me or just more they're not bitcoiners like that kind of thing like you pointed out actually does become a logistical nightmare for some people i mean if you think I, I'm actually curious, like what percent of people have passports like in the United States and have been outside and it's not like a, it's not like a status thing. I mean, it's, we're very fortunate to have them and even to have the ability to move at this point in the surveillance state at all. But navigating those challenges is super unique, personal. No one's going to go through the same thing you went through to try to get there, but I'm hoping we can get some interesting examples of people. I mean, again, I'd, I'd point to Nolan as a pretty awesome situation who are trying these things because it is useful. I mean, it's, it's, it's attractive on so many levels, depending on what you're trying to do as a safe haven. It also kind of like comes down to like, how paranoid are you? Like what probability do you put the United States being engaged in a, you know, some kind of like catastrophe or war? These are all of the things you start to think about. And you realize you're you're embracing a mindset that most people haven't. I mean, maybe it's unfair to say I don't know what most people are thinking, but I think a lot of people don't plan seven years into their future, you know, five years into their future. And when you start to get into time horizons that long for planning made possible, obviously, for a lot of us by Bitcoin, you start to be able to do things that other people can't because they're not they're not playing the game on that level they haven't prepared, you know, they're thinking one, two years out in their life, or maybe they're living hand to mouth. Maybe they're just trying to cover rent for the next month. So yeah, hugely, hugely complicated kind of personal decisions there. All right. We've gone deep on real estate and land ownership. Let's hit another question. I think, yeah, I'm looking here. Okay, so the risks and rewards. I'm curious your opinion about this. We can talk both, like we can cover one and then the other, like of investing in Bitcoin companies or the new thing is uh, investing in Nostra companies, you know, the few that are going the VC route. What are the, the trade-offs for some of these decentralized platforms? When should you consider it, if at all? What do you think? I think it very much depends on what is the product and audience you want to cater to. I don't think every single company needs to be decentralized. I worry that it's quickly becoming this moniker kind of akin to like crypto and web three, where it's like the flashy hot thing to say, but then it slowly becomes diluted because not everyone actually is as decentralized as they claim to be. And so I almost worry that it's like turning into almost a, uh, a trending investment rather than an established, entrenched, necessary, new growing industry. Yeah, I think 
Bitcoiners are really focused on adoption and like the everyman. And so I think by proxy, we get like a lot of exposure to private equity in the space, especially because it's such a nascent, small community. I think people are coming to touch these things for the first time that they've never like just instruments, ways of investing that they've never had exposure to or really looked for before. And it excites them because, you know, every company is aligned with their with their goals. You know, most of them seem to be on the surface. Yeah, we're going to spread Bitcoin. We're going to get super wealthy doing it. We're going to implement this, you know, financial payments and services technology. Maybe it's an insurance play. You know, maybe it's maybe it's just like a consulting play. But the question really at the back of my mind, usually for these people, is just what are you trying to do? Because by making this, you know, this is not really a diversification. It's just like a patently worse way to get exposure to Bitcoin, unless you believe that investment can outperform Bitcoin itself. And that is the bar. If you don't think it can outperform Bitcoin, just hold Bitcoin. It's <laughs> it's so much more powerful. It's so much more liquid. Your tax obligations are <clears throat> different. There's different considerations you have to make but on the whole it's going to take you infinitely less time and energy to just buy bitcoin and hold it in cold storage than it is to manage a portfolio of like private equity interests that being said there's like basically two models for venture investing that i see this applies to both bitcoin and Nostra, maybe even more so Nostra than bitcoin at this point but i think a lot of people don't realize that what they're doing is actually charity these are not by normal startup company, you know, revenue standards. Many of these companies, unfortunately, are probably not going to make it. And a lot of the investments going into them don't seem particularly well vetted. And I mean, that's fine if like charity is what you want to do and you want to contribute, do your part, give something back by supporting these guys. Maybe you're like super high net worth and just have a lot of uh, money and like goodwill to burn. But I think... I think the hurdle for what is a legitimate business in the space that has a chance of outperforming Bitcoin, like that's a super high bar. That's not something you're going to come across. That's not a deal that's going to come to your inbox every week, right? It's going to be pretty few and far between. And even then you're taking tremendous risk, tremendous third-party risk, and you're probably going to lose that investment. I, I'm sorry. Like you, I'm going to just be very direct. You kind of sound like a little bitch right now. Uh, you have to take risk, man. You have to, like, if you want to build something that most people don't think is a good idea, but you're convinced is a good fucking idea. Wait, I'm not talking about builders, though. I'm, like not, us. Like, I'm not talking about builders, though. I'm talking about people who are trying to decide whether or not they want to get into, they, they suddenly come upon a deal, whatever. They're invited to a syndicate. They're invited to a fund. Let's say the accredited investor hurdle is self-certification so they're good they can just say they're accredited they have they have a chance this, this happens hundreds of plebs a year you know are coming in at thousands and it's like, how do they decide whether or not to make that investment and my bar is do you think it'll outperform bitcoin and do you understand just the risks of venture investing i'm not trying to discourage people from taking risks i'm just saying like there's a little bit of risk management there that you wouldn't I don't know if you'd be used to making that judgment call if you hadn't done it before, if that makes sense. I get what you're saying. I just, I go back to this notion of we need to, we kind of need to develop the ecosystem a lot more. And 
I worry that too many people are like frozen in fear over this idea of, well, I should just buy and hold Bitcoin. When in reality, yeah, cool. But if we don't build the products around that, you won't ever be able to really maximize the value of your Bitcoin and then in turn live off of it in the ways that you imagined. So there, there is another side of this too, where I hear you on the, you have to make sure it outpaces the growth of Bitcoin, but you also have to make Bitcoin, make sure Bitcoin grows, period. Because if it doesn't grow, then this is it. That's where, yeah, that's where I personally, I mean, I don't disagree to the point of, I'm not trying to make decisions for other people, but personally, I'm like, okay, just buying with savings and holding is not enough for me. I have a higher risk appetite. I want to accumulate more Bitcoin. I'm going to take more risk to do so. And I'm young enough where, you know, let's say those risks don't pay off and I lose and I actually end up having less Bitcoin than I would have if I just bought and hold. That's something you, you have to just acknowledge that that's a possibility. Like it's just, these are the kind of comparisons I think it's like prudent to do before you make any investment, even in your traditional stock market, it's what's the opportunity cost of this thing. So yeah, on the flip side of it to the builders, it's, dude, go all out. We can't get enough of them. And it's honestly, the other side of that is it's pretty easy to spin up a company, put together a deck and find some people that are willing to invest. Like a credit investor capital is the most plentiful resource in the world actually. And once you start calling up people, you're going to get feedback on your project. You're going to get, I mean, maybe it's legitimate, maybe it's not, but companies raise millions with no revenue every day. It's so insane. <laughs> it's so I don't do pre-revenue, but, and maybe sometimes there's a case for it, you know, but I'm just saying there's a lot of, there's a lot of questionable things out there and the market will sort them out. It's not, this is not something where we need to go and activate or make new regulations. No, no, no. The market will send these, they, they, it, will, it will wreck the, the, the illegitimate businesses and people who manage their risk appropriately and provide a good or service that people find valuable, they'll be rewarded. And that's just that. Fair. Um, yeah, I think going over really quick to touch on the Noster side, the Noster question I have is what is your revenue model? Is it going to be ads based? I mean, you're by spinning up a client. Sure. You've got access to let's call it half a million, though it's surely far less active users immediately, but how are you going to rally them? How are you going to monetize your platform? You know, what's the plan there? We see people kind of struggling with this publicly who run clients on Noster, you know, um, will Castron, for example, pointing out that, you know, I don't really want to be beholden to VCs or take VC money. Like it's a scary thing, but he's, but I can't, I can't monetize the other way, you know, like I can't, I can't keep taking grants. They're not sustainable. They're not large enough to pay my staff and to build out and do the ambitious things we want to do. And it's okay. Well, now you might be getting somewhere because you've at least waited to the point where you have a viable service that people show up daily for some amount of people. So Maybe it's just a question of scale. It's not, do I raise money or don't I? It's just, well, how much should you take? Who should you take it from? Otherwise you are just going to be beholden to charity or you need to figure out a revenue model. 
you might have to go the way of ads. Everybody hates it, but <laughs> it works. I mean, it can work. You fall into a similar trap of Twitter with the difference being if I don't like your ad policy, I'm just going to switch. Let's let's pretend Domus had an ad policy I don't like. They don't, but let's pretend they did. I would just start using my primal mobile app, you know? I would just switch. I would use I would use Iris on desktop. So you've got user choice there, which is going to make it very interesting because I think some of the companies in Noster, I mean, I guess we can call them companies, have started to raise. And I'm curious to see what they do with those funds, how long it lasts them, and how they bring a differentiated value add to the space that allows them to bring in revenue and, you know, with any luck, become profitable one day versus those that are grants, charity based, they have like massive good reputation in the space and people tend to send them. I mean, they're making a, a decent amount. You can check it's public, like a lot of it, like on, on zaps day to day, but not enough to run a company. So like, how are they going to get that leg up? And, you know, that liquidity injection from VCs, it, it's got advantages, but it's got massive trade-offs too. When you get further down the line and bigger decisions need to be made, especially with something as wild west as no stewards. Okay. How are we going to deal with moderation censorship? Um, you know, what is an ad model that's sustainable, but not going to corrupt our, our sort of ethics. A lot to consider. I, I don't really envy their position, but if I was running a Noster client, I mean, I would, it would be revenue before before any of these considerations could really be made. Like you should give it your best shot, you know? Fair. Oh. Fair. I do like the the notion of not not investing before revenue. But I again like I'm always with the notion if you have the conviction, you know, I'm always on the hunt for businesses that or business models that I'm interested in. And I think those feed into how much risk I'm willing to take, what I need to see out, out of the company and, and so on and so forth. But I don't wanna to get too caught in the weeds on this. I wanna bounce to the next question unless there's anything else you wanna hit on. No, I think, that, I think that does it, yeah. I think that's good for today. The moral is, you know, if you don't know what to do, Work on your self-custody <laughs> and your Bitcoin stack. Next question we kind of already hit, actually. Let's see. Oh, this one's kind of lame. Can you explain how the proof-of-work system is evolving with an increased focus on sustainable energy, if it is? Say that again. How um, how the proof of how Bitcoin mining is evolving with an increased focus on sustainable energy, whatever you'd like to call it, green energy. I would argue that that priority is the exact same it was five years ago. And the logic and reasoning that I'll present to you is the same one I would go on rant about on Bitcoin Magazine Live a year ago. But Bitcoin miners are incentivized to 
to find the cheapest source of energy they can access. That's why you see them make deals with energy companies. That's why they tend to go and be as close to power plants. And we see all of these interesting ways that it's being announced like, oh, a new Bitcoin mining facility is opening up, being powered by insert whatever the power source may be. Mm -hmm. But we saw some years ago that some really, really smart um, people who had some Bitcoin miners essentially realized a way to harness methane gas and then gave way and paved the way for multiple businesses who essentially built this as their business model of we will set up Bitcoin mining rigs at at, uh, natural gas mining facilities and capitalize on the methane gas that otherwise would have just been flared and sent off into the atmosphere where we found a new way to capitalize on that energy and put it to work. And Mm -hmm. I believe we will continue to see and the further innovation in the clean, green, whatever, whatever label you want to give the next era of innovation in that space will continue to come from Bitcoin mining because we've already seen it. It's already begun from Bitcoin mining because these miners have the incentive to find cheap sources of energy and they will continue to go out and find cheap sources of energy. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think we'll see, we're going to see it decentralized. I mean, the, the tech's really not quite there to the point where you're, I think your average everyday person could set it up, but it's like an ambitious thing. And there's, there's, they're priced out on some level. These machines aren't cheap. They're cheap relatively now getting more expensive, but um, it's a headache, right? It's, it's a lot of calculus to figure out whether you're going to be profitable or not on these things. So I'm with you. They're incentivized to find cheap renewable power. But I think what we'll see is people are going to be able to test out different kind of ideas around this at the home level and learn very quickly and adapt to their power kind of input needs especially as hash rate just keeps breaking through new all-time highs. You've got basically just more and more competition. Actually, I read a crazy stat the other day that the the last whole Bitcoin will be mined just like 30 years from now, something, maybe less. It shouldn't be too hard to math out, but kind of insane to think about the amount of, you know, the billions of dollars of in- infrastructure that's, that's being maintained and built out every year just to capture a little bit of this value before it goes nuts. Would you ever, have you considered mining or, or some kind of home setup before? Yeah. I mean, like I, I, at one point actually had a really bad inefficient home setup. just again, as a, let me, let me see how to, how to set this up and what, what it would be like literally use it as an overpriced heating unit zero out of 10 would not recommend the inefficient use of this stuff, but. And, and what you're talking about is cost of power, the cost of power. Was yeah, too high. Oh, super, super important. Residential rates, right? Yeah. You can't, you can't mine in California. There's a reason there's, <laughs> there's a reason riot, despite the fact that they have offices in Irvine, doesn't mine in Irvine, California. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know they had offices in Irvine. Oh yeah. They were tech, tech and right. And marathon most of the teams are out here in california love it big 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 fan of marathon 
excited to see them build out in the Middle East. There's some pretty interesting discussion they had about the different challenges they face and one of the costs they had to, I mean, where I'm at, there's a kind of similar climate in some ways. One of the challenges they have is just all the dust and the sand. You can't prevent it from getting into absolutely everything. And so you're going to be replacing fans more. You're going to have more hardware. Your hardware is going to experience entropy at a higher rate out there. Not necessarily, I mean, there's probably worse places to do it. I mean, you have this in anywhere with extreme heat like Texas too. It's okay, well, you need to spend more infrastructure cooling these things down. Are you going to submerge them? I'm really interested to see how we harness the power of the ocean and build these things out on the water. You've seen this tidal change mechanism that can mine Bitcoin. I think the the Hawaii, the Hawaiian Bitcoiners, I don't know if they realized it, but they... I don't know if the project is working today, but this was at least an idea at least a year ago where they were going to take the differential of like waves. It's like this weird buoy mechanical system that generates electricity, generates hydropower, but it floats. It's not like you need a stream to run through it or a river to run through it or something. But yeah, to get back to your point, it's it's again that individual thesis. Like Bitcoin is just so individualistic. Like it's just so beholden to you know your your goals really come down to you at the end of the day and each user's use case is so personal that it's just i don't know what do you want to achieve for me it's okay i want to heat my house like my house gets really cold you know 30 40 degrees so it's okay how am i going to heat my house well i'm fortunate enough to have solar so it's Okay, so maybe I won't experience that same like California residential rate as Q, but what is the differential there? And if I can get a cheap miner, you know, how long will it take me to be profitable? And a lot of people I know that have kind of made that equation for themselves and gone on to even get racks and racks of miners. Maybe they're hosted at a facility nearby or maybe they're mining just from home. A lot of them come back honestly and say, don't do it. It was a big mistake. It was a mess. It was way more expensive than I anticipated. Now I'm stuck with these like electricity bills every month. And, uh, you know, it's just a little too much work. But for me, the, the equation's more like, okay, I've got no power bill. If I get a miner, I will definitely have one. But what is the cost of just learning how this works? Because I kind of just want the education. It's something that scares me. It's something that I don't know how to do. And it's something that I think a better understanding of would help benefit a lot of what I do in this space. I invest in a lot of Bitcoin mining companies. So I'm like, this would, I mean, that's unlimited to me, the amount of the knowledge and the experience of going through it. That's worth the, the potential opportunity cost. And if it gets too expensive, you just turn the thing off. I mean, these, these machines are good for years. You can resell them. So that's that's about where I'm at with the with the whole home mining thing. I'm also really banking on Block to release their I don't know, hopefully some hardware for mining, at home mining, something like that. You know, they've got Spiral working on ways to decentralize mining further, make it accessible, build out infrastructure, let people at Africa mine at home who don't necessarily have like same grid system we have here. So excited for that. Should we move on to kind of our title thumbnail for the day? No, we have two questions from the audience from oh, we do? the fire. Oh, um, so the first is, can Bitcoin's infrastructure withstand the current attacks by the DOJ or SEC 
essentially the government at large. Can Bitcoin's infrastructure was what attacks are they making? <laughs> yeah, for I mean, sure. It, I, attacks I on say, businessmen? No, like I would on. say it, it ranges, man. It it can be anything from you know licenses and <clears throat> certain certain requirements that the government is issuing. It can be, you know, extra regulations or tax tax sort of implications. Uh, pick your least favorite thing the government does, and I promise you they have at one point or another either considered, discussed, or will roll out that type of a law as it pertains to Bitcoin. Here's here's a this is this is genuinely my answer because my path to fire you ask specifically about a lot of these US centric government agencies i will say this can bitcoin's infrastructure withstand attacks from a government yes like it's not going to stop like a new block isn't not going to be mined I think what could happen is you could see Bitcoin being outlawed in America. I could see, you know, some rhetoric being pushed that it's illegal to hold your own Bitcoin. No one should be self-custodying. And from that. Yeah, for sure. That is for sure going to fall into the camp of money laundering as they expand the definition of it. Sure. I just it that that to me is just more like we're, we're chewing the weeds on it. I think big picture. Bitcoin will survive regardless of what laws, regulations, or attempts by government agencies there are at trying to disrupt it. It may be that, you know, America is not a jurisdiction where you should be at if you want to be holding Bitcoin. And I think from the idea of, to simplify it, can the U.S. ban Bitcoin and make the life of Bitcoiners in America really difficult? Absolutely. Will they? Possibly. Um, so it, it's kind of, a, I, I feel like I'm copying out by saying it doesn't matter what action the government takes. Like mm. in, in the spirit. Sorry, but, I finished your thought. I just want to say I'm with you there. That's kind of where I'm going to pick up. Yeah. Like in, in the spirit of your question, no. Bitcoin's infrastructure or yes, Bitcoin's infrastructure can withstand any attack from any government in the world. It's just that what those attacks look like could in fact make it damn near impossible within the boundaries of that jurisdiction to use Bitcoin. But the Bitcoin infrastructure at large, globally, will continue to operate without issue. I, My response would be, and great questions, my path to fire, uh, shout out from Germany. It's nice to hear from you. Um, I don't think that the DOJ and the SEC are attacking Bitcoin's infrastructure. I mean, I hate to say it, but pulling down wallet of Satoshi has no effect on the Bitcoin network. It's not, it's not, that's not Bitcoin. These are the companies. Shut down Coinbase, Cash App, Strike, whatever your sort of favorite place to buy Bitcoin from, all of it can be shut down tomorrow. The next month block will still be mined. Listen, trusted third parties are security holes. So this is why we run the numbers at home. This is why I've been waiting. <laughs> what am I at? Two days. Uh, let's see what percent I'm at right here. 
two days to download the Bitcoin blockchain. I'm at 73% away from being uh, self-sovereign again with, with the second note here. So if you have that system at home and you don't even need it to use Bitcoin, you don't necessarily need a node. But if you choose to do so, you're you're in a position where these attacks don't really matter unless you're completely fixated on the fiat price. Now, let's play out Q's example. Let's say they shut down just one of them, a Coinbase, a Kraken or so. I don't think that's going to happen. But, you know, stranger things have happened. Yeah, the price is going to be affected. But the important thing to understand about Bitcoin is at this point, the most obvious attack vector for the Department of the DOJ and the SEC is is the price. That's that's really their only way in. The only other attack from governments that I actually worry about because I don't I don't they make on ramps and off ramps more difficult. I I give my Bitcoin non KYC like peer to peer. I don't care. We're we're good without it. A lot of people are not at that level. So I think what you'd see is an immediate drop in the price it'll be suppressed it'll be harder to catch on it makes innovation and business more difficult in that jurisdiction now you have the freedom to move to a new place so this touches on a lot of what we've covered today i think ultimately their actual better opportunity for attacking bitcoin along with the price which they'll always do it's public but you know it's just it's just right there for them to try to manipulate is more psychological operations getting in with developers and campaigning for things that will ultimately bring down the system. So that is a psychological operation by a nation state or a malicious actor who are promoting changes to Bitcoin that will ultimately lead to it unraveling, falling apart somehow, losing value. Maybe they introduce a bug. That's a real, I don't want to spread FUD, but that's, you have to assign some probability to that happening. I mean, Bitcoin changes relatively often. If you kind of look at the speed with which, and and how little resistance something like Taproot stirred up, I'm not saying that's an attack on Bitcoin. I'm just giving you an example of, we don't really talk about enough how changes to Bitcoin are implemented and how they ought to be ideally implemented and how do we educate everyone on what you know they kind of want to quote unquote vote for and what is you know nakamoto consensus so that would be a, a vector i'd worry about the, the the problem with bitcoin is the incentives are not to attack it it's let's keep it running smoothly and just get some especially if the u.s government and you can just fail all of your audits <laughs> in every department imaginable, print more money and buy some or confiscate it from upstanding citizens. But dude, among the attacks recently, the one that bums me out the most is nodeless. Yeah. The attack on running your own lightning infrastructure is 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 sad to see. Not not unexpected, but I really hate to see the people that are going out of their way putting their time in essentially for no money to develop products and services for people to use free and open source. Those people getting served and inevitably jailed. I mean, this goes back to my thesis. I think a lot of people share this. Like Bitcoiners will be hunted. There's just, there's a time for you to, you know, you, you got to have kind of a phase two plan here, especially if you're running critical, you know, mixing infrastructure. I just think more and more of the actions that we take for granted today are going to fall under this ambiguous and overreaching surveillance regulation 
that falls under the chapter of money laundering. That's how they're going to come after you, the individual, in my opinion. I don't know. Do with that. Do with that opinion what you will. But yeah, great questions this morning. I really appreciate those from my path to fire. I'm going to try to catch up with your with your responses here for a sec. I'm going to quickly answer his other one before we wrap up today's stream. I've got a few minutes. But as it pertains to the Bitcoin miners, look, do your own do your own research, look into it as you see fit. But it is worth sort of pointing out that historically speaking, when Bitcoin is in a bull market, these miners have grown exponentially greater than the price of Bitcoin, because not only do they have Bitcoin in their holdings, but they also have exposure to Bitcoin outside of it. So just something to consider as you know, the conversation is we're about to enter a new bull market, something to monitor, something to keep an eye on. I believe if I'm not mistaken, I haven't looked at where the miners trade at today, but I, I still oh. actually think year to date, like if you had bought Marathon or Bitcoin on Jan 1, you're up, your gains on Marathon stock are greater. But someone confirm that. Yeah, I'll confirm it for you here in just one second. Yeah, I mean, in the past five years, Marathon's up. 367 percent no um, you're, that's not the way to look year at to date well you can i mean it's just what no, you want. If, if you look year to date it's up 212 percent. so yeah you've outpaced you've outpaced bitcoin you have to look at these mining companies on on shorter time frames you can't be looking at a mining company mining stock over a three-year window because just like the gains outpace bitcoins the declines also outpace bitcoin so you kind of have You're that's why I, I don't like looking at yeah. These are, these are very cyclical stocks. Also, three years ago, a lot of these companies didn't exist. <laughs> and well, Or uh, they were doing something else. They had they a were doing something play, completely. Like Marathon existed. It, was, it had no been around a long time. exposure to yeah. Bitcoin whatsoever. So right. that, that right. is a and very now you've got, they've got Yeah, now you've got the, you know, the second biggest bag. Yeah, when it comes to... I don't know what I've noticed. I like this question just because I personally trade a lot of mining options risky more volatile for bitcoin and what i found is when bitcoin falls you bite it hard to the downside and when it rises you outperform it i was like you my path to fire i had a lot of micro strategy and then it popped up sometime over the summer they bought and the, the stock just went crazy it must have hit like 450 or something marathon outperformed even that i mean it was like a 60 percent rise over the course of a couple of months, really. Yeah, the um, marathon one, it was due in large part because, and I remember tracking this in December of, I want to say it was December of 2020, but I remember reading their earnings report and they had marked the price of Bitcoin at $9,000 and it, was, it had already surpassed 20K by the time I was reading this report. And I was like, whoa. They are about to have an explosion. And this was a, a window of time where I kid you not, man, their stock would go up 50% in the first hour and then close the day down 15%. Like it, it was a, yeah. a wild time in marathon stock when right before it really picked up. Yeah. And the important thing to remember about mining companies is they take like insane amount of debts on to build out. I mean, they do different things with it, but not um, all of them. The pro, I, I haven't found one that doesn't have a ridiculous amount of debt. Do you know any? 
you need to define ridiculous. I, I, th I think you have to define it better with a debt to equity ratio. I'm trying to pull fair. up. Fair, fair, fair. Uh, I'll say this, no matter the scale of the debt they take on, their ability to service it diminishes over time due to the Bitcoin halving. So that's one problem you'll, you'll run into is like some of these companies, maybe you want to place bets with them, see what happens, but just realize that some of them are probably going to go out of business. Like even the names you know and love are going to get absolutely wrecked. They make one little mistake. I mean, this is a tight margin game here. This, you know, Bitcoin security expenditure, it's, it's a hard one to get right. There's no one tried and true business model. And the amount of variables and risks that they have to manage are absolutely insane. So it's it's way riskier than holding so than holding Bitcoin itself. I so I'm gonna give you the two largest companies as an example, real quick. Marathon. Its debt percentage is over two hundred percent to about two hundred and four percent of or two hundred and three percent of their equity is how much debt they essentially um, hold. On the other side of that, Riot, the other largest Bitcoin mining company, is a 0% debt level. And I actually remember being at a thing, a SWAN event, Jason Les was talking, and they were very proud of the fact that they had no, no debt. I think important question, what what do you mean by largest hash rate? For me, it's always Bitcoin holdings, because that's a sure way to service some of that debt too, is they sell they sell Bitcoin. It goes against the HODL model, but it's just the way of the world. They have to sell Bitcoin to pay their electricity bill. It's Marathon Hut 8 Riot Galaxy, like in that order of Bitcoin holdings. But in terms of hash rate, I'm not I'm not quite sure who's what the order would be. I I want to say, I mean and the mining pools would far surpass some of these, but I more mean from a market cap perspective. And Marathon is the number one market cap, and Riot is the number two market cap. Because candidly, when investors come into this space, they're not going into the weeds of uh, what's the difference between HUD and Marathon yeah. and who holds more Bitcoin. So while we may care about these things, like candidly, the people who move the market they don't so dude it's also like on the daily seeing who the most volatility obviously comes from these i mean some of them are like one dollar sub one dollar stocks like mining stocks or infrastructure plays too yeah that's just the penny penny stock market in general though yeah uh, a lot of fraud in that in those markets so tread lightly and be careful yep 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 i'm gonna kill the stream because it cool, is cool man Wait, wait, wait. One last note. Good job, Michael Saylor. And your mic was true. <laughs> we didn't address the thumbnail at all. Great job, bro. Keep it up. You're killing it. <laughs> all right. <Good> job, everyone. <laughs>